Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 79 of the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. Today, we've got Maggie McGuire joining us as the final guest in our mini-series on the importance of building the skill of decision-making in individuals and in teams. Maggie is Chief Executive Officer of Pinna.fm, a leading provider and distributor of podcasts, audiobooks, and music for kids 3 to 12 years of age. Thank you for sharing your talents and insights with us today, Maggie. Oh, it's great to be here, Andy. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, when I was uh, I was uh, doing some research on you and on Pinna, and I'd known of Pinna for a long time because uh, it is a uh, Graham Holdings uh, company, and that's how we've crossed paths. Uh, but uh, did not know that the Pinna is the external part of the ear. Yes, a clever connection. Our brand name yeah. is is very literal in some senses, but a lot of people think it's a, a made up name until I share that with them. They're like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Did, did, was, was that your brainchild? It wasn't. I actually was able to um, benefit from the brainchild of folks who came right before me in an incubator phase, the folks at Panoply, ah. um, who were thinking very um, deeply about, is there an opportunity for kids podcasts? And they came up with the name and then I got talking to them and here I am sort of carrying the torch. Uh, that's awesome. Panoply, now Megaphone, correct? Panoply, now Megaphone, now absorbed into Spotify. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, Maggie, before we get started, it would be great if you told our listeners your story. Sure. So, I uh, have been a children's media executive for over 25 years, um, but we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit with the follow-up question that's coming, I know, but I think... What's important to know is my career path started as a teacher in a classroom, and I've been really committed to kids and education and entertaining and educating kids for my entire career trajectory. So I uh, started as a teacher in New York City Public Schools. I then worked for Teacher America, International Baccalaureate, helped create the Middle Years Program that's now in schools worldwide. And then I made a leap into en the entertainment industry, bringing my background in education to impact media for kids. And so I worked for a small television production company, uh, JP Kids, then Nickelodeon, then Scholastic. And then here I am today leading a children's media company in the audio space called Pinna. What, what, uh, what grades uh, did you teach? I started as a high school teacher, ninth and 10th but spent the majority of my remaining teaching years in middle school, seventh and eighth graders. And, you know, folks used to say, oh, middle school, that's such a tough couple years to teach. And I said I would, I loved middle schoolers. They were dramatic and they were different every single day. And there was a lot of heart and a lot of drama. And um, they were, you know, older, uh, but not yet too cool for school. So there was a lot of, yeah. I had a lot of fun. I taught English language arts, history, and drama. I loved it. Well, uh, teaching one of the noble professions, thank you for your contributions uh, to the field of education, but specifically your time in the classroom uh, is uh, just to be applauded. If you had to pick one event in your life that just put rocket boosters uh, under your career, what would that be? Interestingly enough, I 
made a decision to leave the classroom when I was probably in my late 20s, right? Yeah, right, right at my late 20s and start over. I mean, so I was um, progressing and been in education for a number of years. I'd been in the classroom, IB, Teach for America, could have really like moved on in the career, in in an educational career path, but decided to marry my love of education with the power, and now we really do feel that power in our current culture of media and its impact on children, and thought I could make a meaningful contribution to reaching exponentially more kids than I potentially do in my classroom through the power of media. And what, what I believe is what power boosted where I am today is my willingness in my late 20s to run coffees and become somebody's desk assistant in the media space in order to get in the door. And a lot of people would say, oh, wow, didn't that just put you back a number of years? And you could look at it that way, but I had moxie and determination and perseverance and a willingness to roll up my sleeves and and do what was necessary for the role that I accepted running somebody's coffees as a media executive and propelled myself forward, making great connections and doing the work to get, you know, further and further along in the media um, space. And so I think it was a willingness to um, not be so concerned with the title and titles, but to look at my path and understand what vision I had for where I wanted to go and realize what I needed to do to get there. Yeah, it sounds like you used that uh, as as an experiential educational opportunity, and you know, look, looking at it not as a step back, but as an experiential learning opportunity is a a frame that I think more people uh, need to uh, adopt as they you know, shift and change in their career. Careers are not uh, linear one-way paths anymore. And I think you're really demonstrating that. And again, if we look at them as experiential learning opportunities instead of the derogatory step back, uh, I think we'd we'd certainly be better off. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think I'm ready to talk a little bit about the, the differences between fixed thinking and flexible thinking. And I, I really do think that that approach to life was a fuel starter for me and um, being really flexible in how we get somewhere and things are not linear and capitalizing on the skills you have and applying them into new endeavors is is all part of the secret sauce I think that's awesome thank you know if 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 the podcast ended right now you know that is just a super valuable lesson for everybody uh, but but let's dive into the topic at hand which is decision making you made a yeah. big decision in your late 20s can you help our listeners understand the process you go through when faced with making a challenging multifaceted organizational decision sure you know um and andy you and your listeners probably share the same perspective. There's many kinds of decisions. So first, you know, thinking about what category does this live in? So I'll I'll put on my um, leadership hat for this um, answer, but I think it does apply even on our personal life. So as a business leader, you know, I'm first thinking about 
Is this a people decision, a culture building decision? Is this a financial investment decision or, or you know, financial metrics um, involved? Is this uh, an operational efficiency? And, and why do I start there? Because it's going to be who are the people that I'm going to bring together to help make this decision or influence or provide input into this decision. So it, it's going to matter. I'm a huge believer that there are multiple solutions and multiple paths. Choosing one is sometimes the hard part. But if you bring uh, the right people in the room and you are prepared to be flexible, not fixed in your thinking, you're probably going to get to the best results. So um, ensure that everyone who you've brought into that room has clarity. Why are we here today? What are we talking about? Is this a problem we're solving? Is this uh, an ideation um, uh, uh, effort that will lead to some decision-making down the pike? Then obviously uh, getting everybody to have a voice in that room. And so sitting back and actively listening. And as a leader, if I'm in the situation of having to make the ultimate decision, my mindset is I have not come in with a fixed answer for myself. I may have lots of ideas, but I first want to just clear my mind and hear candidly what a, a variety of different individuals at the table who've been invited for very logical reasons have to say. I, I'm a scenario person. Anyone who's ever worked with me knows that I don't ask a team to come up with one solution. I want a couple scenarios always because we're going to make a decision on one of them and we're going to test it out and we're going to see if it works and we're going to have criteria and rationale and success metrics for whether it worked or not. And we've got some other things in our back pocket always. So there's always multiple approaches and always multiple scenarios. And then, you know, and then during that consideration phase, what's influencing um, this scenario? Uh, why, you know, what are the pros and cons of it? It might mean we we depart for a while and each do some deep thinking. I'm, I'm going to say deep thinking is a critical component of making a good decision, not yeah. making snap decisions. So setting up the discussion in a way that everyone knows clearly. We're going to talk about it today. Everybody's going to get time to walk away and think about it. We've got a timeline that we're working with. So it's not infinite indecision. <laughs> We've got a timeline. Um, but I want you to do some real deep thinking about what we talked about today. Digest it. Maybe something else is going to come to mind, you know, while you're on your walk or making dinner or over the next couple of days, and we're going to regroup. So giving time to go away, think, come back, and now start to, to put together, did you, did you do some further research on it? Did you think further on it? Was there rationale that we hadn't discussed in the first round? Um, but listen, 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 and then start to create um, scenarios, right? Scenario one looks like this. Here are the pros and cons of it. Here's the data around, you know, I dug in, I did some research. There's some numbers to support it, or there are some use cases or case studies that support it. So really, do we have any evidence, any useful data that can also support our hypothesis? And then getting to a place where we're going to make a choice. And I think it's important at the outset, you, you set up like, is this a consensus decision we're talking about? Is this a decision where I, it's a, actually I'm going to have to make it, but I really am appreciative of the inputs that you're providing me. And I'll come back and tell you why I made the decision. But to give people clarity throughout the process as to how their ideas will manifest. I think the last piece of this for me you know, after the choice, there are people who feel responsible 
and there can sometimes be fear. Uh, I don't want this to be on my head. And if it, and if if it doesn't work, then I'll be evaluated. To set up a scenario where everybody knows we're all in this together, and we collectively are making this choice, or I own this, and I get that it may or may not work, but we've got a really smart plan, is so important. Um, and then I think the follow through to make sure that everybody who is part of that decision understands that we're following through on what we said we would do on measuring it and evaluating it and determining if we need to keep doing what we're doing because it worked or if we need to pivot and make some changes and, and that nobody's, you know, head is going to be chopped off because it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, your, your, your frame of uh, getting, you know, getting, gaining consensus, bringing folks together. But I think the trick that many leaders miss is the, 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 the why uh, of uh, coming back after the decision has been made and saying, okay, we made this decision. This is the why behind it. Uh, because if you don't do that, then the ability to rally everyone around the decision uh uh, is so much more difficult. There's there's this air of mystery. Why did yes. that decision get made? And my voice wasn't heard. And and all of the angst that can be avoided with you know with a simple conversation that comes mm. after the decision's been made about the why. I couldn't agree more on on even on a like whatever level the decision is small you know. S small items that affect the whole team or large decisions that are impacting the business to be really clear and transparent with your team about what was decided and why and to follow through on what's happening. How is it playing out? And to own that as a leader, like I've been in situations where I was like, I had a hypothesis. We all did the decision-making process together, but I had to call the shot, right? And it's not playing out the way we hoped. And I'm perfectly comfortable saying it's not working. Let's pivot. Like uh, to to not fear failure, to not fear that the decision you make, like it's not fixed. I, I I can't implore more. Like fixed versus flexible thinking has yeah. been the balm for all of the decision making that I've made with my teams, and I think it brings people to the table in a way that if you're um, never talking about that. And you're, to your point, you're, you're never really like discussing behind the scenes stuff. Everybody feels like they're, on, they're being judged and that, you know, they're being critiqued. And that's just not going to get us to the best discussions, brainstorms, or decisions. Yeah. So, Maggie, you, you, you've spent most of your career in entertainment and media. Uh, I'm a musician. Uh, before the show, we were talking. You come from a musical background. So I'm, I've been both a leader and a creator. Uh, I'd, I'd like to tap into your experience there a little bit. Can you give us a peek into the common decision-making missteps that occur in the field of entertainment and media? And how do those missteps differ from the, through the lens of a creator versus the, me, the, the big old bad media executive? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I say yeah, that tongue in cheek because you know that that's that's how the public views media executives. I know that you're not, you know, in that big bad category, but you know that that's yeah, that, that's that's the lens that we're looking at that through. Yeah, 
It's such a great question. Um, I'm sure, you know, what I'm about to say applies external to the media and entertainment industry as well. But um, specifically, you know, there's business decisions that have financial metrics and, you know, return on investment metrics. But to make a, a lot of the decisions in the entertainment space are qualitative and subjective, frankly, um, around content. And if content is what generates our financial future, <laughs> because that is what we're selling, it's interesting that, um, and I and I spend a lot of time with the teams who I've worked with in my career who are responsible for creative ideation, the creators. It's um, a marriage of helping creators understand that even if we don't pick your idea, it doesn't mean your idea was bad. But using, marrying creativity and subjectivity and some gut, we might not have any data. This might be such a brand new idea. It's never been created before. Nobody's ever sold it before. And we're going to take a big bet on it. Um, and, you know, so a creator's got their idea and they own it and there's emotion to it. And there's, you know, like a, a whole bunch of personal investment in it. And then you've got, you know, I guess the media executive or someone who's got to make the final call, are we going to invest in this idea? And it's about bringing the creators and the, you know, business teams together to discuss the merits of the idea the creative, why it's perfect for our audience, why we why we think we should invest in it. Also looking and sharing with the creative people what we know about things that we've, if we have any data or any insights on user um, habits, behaviors, research that suggests this is a trend, you know, sort of marrying business knowledge, analytics, and data to subjective creative ideas. It's a little bit of a alchemy. And uh, the one thing I would say that Pinna does, uh, and I've done it in all of my past roles in in, in children's media, is um, we litmus test and kid test creative ideas before we green light them and invest a significant amount of money in it. So it's not unlike other business categories that have hypothesis about a new product and you're going to test it before you invest in it. So a test for us in, in a subjective sort of like, should we make this podcast, this television show, produce this book, would be to create a prototype or a sample and put it in front of kids and get their responses and understand is, is the objective we're trying to reach? Are we creating a comedy? Are we creating a mystery that we want kids to solve things alongside? Are we creating a new show and our kids compelled to want to listen to more and more of it. We kid test that and we get insights and we gather those insights. And sometimes, Andy, it means we scrap the whole idea. And then nobody's felt like um, their idea was dismissed. We invested in it enough to test it, right? Like you're bringing the creator into the process of that testing. And in some cases, you're just getting incredible learnings back to refine that creative idea and make it better and greenlight it. So um, it, it's about... Qualitative and quantitative inputs that help us. There's no 100% science formula that says you're always going to nail it just right. But I think you get to a better outcome if you are willing to um, open up your creative process to feedback and input from the customers you're making it for. 
Yeah, try, this balancing act between transparency and emotion. I think it's yes. uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, you, you know, we did not talk before the show about your answer here, but but it's such a great uh, great answer. And you're absolutely right that it's applicable not just in the media industry. The purpose of me asking you this question was uh, because in the media industry, this is probably where that emotion. Uh, and mm-hmm. that attachment might be the highest, uh, yes. but irrespective of the industry, uh, people get deeply uh, emotionally attached to new product ideas, uh, new ways of working. And, uh, you know, your answer to that of balancing transparency uh, with uh, a- almost as an elixir to uh, the the emotional uh, aspects of, of decision-making, I think, is uh, is spot on. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Maggie, we're going to take a quick break for a commercial, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andrew Tempty. In my book, Balancing Act, Teach, Coach, Mentor, Inspire, I explore the characteristics required of leaders who must find balance between strength and vulnerability, confidence and selflessness, passion and measure, and leadership and followership. Balancing Act is available today at Amazon.com. And we're back with Maggie McGuire talking about decision-making in the workplace. Maggie, let's run a quick thought experiment. You have an early career manager in front of you right now who struggles to be decisive and is not confident in their decision-making skills. What do you tell them? I love this question, Andy. Thank you for asking me this. In fact, this is a, I wouldn't say recent in the last six months, but within the last 18 months, I've been in this situation specifically. And the, the I think we talked a little bit about fear so far in this conversation. Yeah. I think um, as leaders who are um, really responsible for modeling and um, coaching up and coming managers, right, to be effective leaders, It's super important at the outset of talking to a young manager who is conflicted or, you know, feels paralyzed and isn't able to make a decision to first unearth what might be preventing them from making a decision. And I always feel like it's helpful as the leader to put right out on the table, like we've discussed, there's lots of different ways a decision can go. And you're going to make your best judgment by building some rationale around it. But I don't want you to have a fear. (laughs) Like, let's remove fear off the table. I think that's such an important piece, especially up and coming managers who obviously they want to do the best job for you and they want to succeed. And, you know, you're all likely hiring people who are very success oriented, which is awesome. But that comes with some um, complexities. People feel like all the weight is on their shoulder. It's scary to make a decision and your manager is going to evaluate you. So to just really help them understand that part of the decision-making process is that you're, you might make an imperfect decision and it might not work out. And I, I felt like that actually just like, it's like alleviating some pressure right at the gate. And then um, really asking, using some time in one-on-ones to give them a bit of a, a task, like, similar to what we just discussed, come up with a couple scenarios that you're thinking about. And when we get together, why don't you, let's talk through those scenarios. 
um, around the decision that you're having a, a trouble making. And do me a favor, when you come up with those scenarios, kind of talk through the pros and cons of each. Because that's actually what the decision-making process we just talked about includes. So you're just using a coaching, couple coaching moments. And again, that time in between, like it's imperative that people have some deep thinking time between talking to you about this problem making a decision and then actually getting to a place where they're confident to making a decision. So maybe set up two conversations, one where you're setting up some coaching parameters and some homework and one where they're coming back to you to really lay out their thought process. I highly encourage um, leaders not to present all the scenarios to the manager. The work is going to come from them if you allow it, right? You're helping to alleviate some pressure and you're providing some guiding and coaching around how to get to a decision, but not doing the scenario making and, you know, kind of leading the decision. Because, I mean, I really want to facilitate you used the word confidence in your question, Andy. I really want to facilitate building confidence and this and the whole and building knowledge around the process of getting to a decision if they haven't been a, in a situation where they're um, tasked with making decisions. So, giving them a lot of experience going through the process we've been talking about in this episode, I think, is super important. Yeah, uh, thank thank you for really stressing this word fear. Uh, because I've known, I'll call them managers, not leaders, because you're uh, you're not really, a, a, in my book, you're not really a leader if you behave in the way that I'm about to describe, but saying, okay, this is... This is your decision. You're going to own this. If this fails, it's all on oh. you. Uh, oh, I've had people tell me that. I've heard other people uh, talk that way uh, to uh, to first time managers, and that kind of fear oh. should not be involved in uh, in you know how are you supposed to develop an effective team? How are you supposed to really collaborate? Because if you put that fear in someone, they're going to do everything possible uh, to try to make their decision work out because they think their career is completely on the line, right? And, you know, yeah, there needs to, there's already a built-in sense of, uh, oh gosh, ownership, this is all on me. Totally. As a a manager, you don't need to, you don't need to double down on that fear. You do not. And um, I like to remind the people that are on my team and managers that report to me. I hired you for your expertise and your talent. I'm confident you're going to get to uh, uh, a place where you're going to feel good about the decision you have to make. My job is to help you get there. And the most important thing in this whole conversation, you nailed it, Andy, remove fear from the organization. Everything, if we had crystal balls, and I, I knew what the perfect answer was, I wouldn't need all those people. I need people and their human intellect to make their best hypothesis with a rationale, with a why, and we'll see how it goes. So we operate, every team I've ever, ever been a part of and had the pleasure of being a leader of, we're a test and learn Everything is a test. I, I mean, I don't mean a test of our own um, abilities. Uh, let's test 
Let's test that out. Let's see how that decision works in the marketplace. Let's see if that'll create more productivity on the team. Let's see if that builds a more, you know, um, optimistic culture. Like nothing is bulletproof until you put it out there and see how it goes. And so to really facilitate a lack of fear and to facilitate support of the final decision. Like I, my, my team managers can come to me anytime and talk through these ideas and, and weigh pros and cons and ask me what I think. And without all of the hierarchical concerns or the, the fear that if I, if I make this decision, I'm going to be judged in my performance review. No, I let them know. I, I think that's the, I will let you know. I think that's a really good idea. Let's test it. I like the language of test and learn. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Maggie, we're, we're going to begin to close out the show now. I'm, I'm really interested in Pinna's business model uh, as a, as a parent, uh, my, my, our, our children are now in their late twenties and early thirties. Uh, but I'm curious about the uptake of the podcast model for kids. Can you just share Pinna's purpose, vision, and its differentiator, uh, talking a little bit about the podcasting angle too? Yes, sure. So, um, we had a hypothesis or I did before I was allowed to build a team around this idea <laughs> or decided to, that um, there was a white space in the market uh, around audio for kids. There was the proliferation of podcasts in the adult marketplace. Podcasts were booming. Certainly ubiquitous understanding of music. And, uh, you know, everybody has heard of or, or listened to an audiobook before, but there was no one destination that brought all three formats together, specifically designed for children around COPA compliance, privacy, FERPA, all the things that we want mm -hmm. for our kids in a safe space. So you would never bump into anything that was not made just for you if you were a three to 12 year old. So not only was Pinna in its incubation phase targeting sort of a white space, nobody was also creating podcasts at scale for kids. There was, you know, I think now there's over a billion podcasts for adults, but Nobody was really looking at the kids space and saying, huh, there's no podcast for scale and sort of an organized view of what that could be and how could they access it in a safe way. So hence the Pinna platform was born and we launched in January 2019. So we just turned four last month and nice. um, we bring all audio uh, formats together in one safe space for kids, classrooms, and families, and we're being listened to globally around the world. And we do two things. We um, look for already produced audiobooks, music, and podcasts from publishers, media companies, and creators, but we are building a deep and robust library of Penna original content. And Andy, I think one of the things that excites me most about where we're headed is um, we want to innovate. So Podcasts, audiobooks, music, check, check, check. We understand those formats, but um, we launched the very first interactive podcasts, voice-activated podcasts. Kids are interacting with their voice to move the narrative forward. Oh, um, very cool. We are creating short-form podcasts. Nobody's done sort of like two- and three-minute dailies across a whole variety of topics. We created a new um, category called interactive nonfiction audiobooks where we've built 
we've gamified the nonfiction storytelling. So you're learning about sharks and then you're going into game rounds and trivia about sharks and you're being presented with um, really fun ways to digest the information in a more gamified game show. Um, and, you know, Penna's mission is to activate kids' imaginations and um, activate them in a new and different way through audio. So we know that kids are hands-free and heads up. They're not staring at a screen when you're listening. So you could be building, you could be taking a walk, you could be cooking, you could be lounging in your um, bed while you listen to a story. And through every audio program Pinna creates, we kid test and we have a hypothesis. We, we want this particular um, show to activate kids thinking deeply about the world through a news show. We want to activate kids making art through our anytime art show. We want kids to get up and move with our Hey Story Go. So it's an interactive get up and and you know move your you move your feet and move your hands in order to move the story forward. We want to activate kids shouting out the answers to um, knowledge based trivia game shows. Um, and and so we're really also a solution to a. Uh, screen-saturated world. We're providing a service and a solution to classrooms and schools and kids and families to make time in their day for non-screen-based entertainment that educates. So we're really excited about where we're headed. Is is there, uh, so this is the final, final question. Is there, uh, is, and I'm going to put you on a spot, is there a character that is in the Pinna universe that you just love? There are many, but one that is beloved. There are many. Um, there are there there are many. I'm going to name two because I can't I can't choose one. Um, one of our shows is called Quentin and Elfie's ABC Adventures, and so Quentin is a rock star babysitter, the babysitter we've all wanted for our kids, and Elfie is a very curious five year old boy who together go on adventures and learn the alphabet and learn new words and explore and find adventure in their everyday life. Uh, so that's a preschool show called ABC Adventures. And Quentin is just like, he is so cool. Kids love that show. You want him to be your kid's babysitter. And he does the coolest things with the most love and, and care and um, empowers Alfie to like discover the world on his own. And the second character that I have to talk about is Opal Watson. Opal is an 11-year-old uh, detective. So it's called Opal Watson Private Eye is the name of the podcast. Nice. And she is also um, a young 11-year-old who is progressively um, becoming a non-sighted um, girl. She's, she suffers from um, retinosa pigmentosa and uses all of her other senses, capabilities, bravery, and strengths and wits to solve mysteries and over the course of that series, she starts, you know, very local in her building in Chicago and then branches out to the city. And then I won't spoil it, but for anybody who really loves a good mystery, she, she as she matures, she branches out into the world to solve bigger mysteries. And she's just a brave, cool, um, persevering detective who I love. <laughs> All right, so Quentin and Opal, uh, we'll, we'll be watching for those. You can find, uh, uh, it's uh, pinna.fm, correct? Yeah, www.pinna.fm. Uh, awesome. Well, Maggie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your contributions for, to the show and our listeners today. 
Uh, as uh, my previous guest pointed out, this whole show is a labor of love. Uh, we're creating a public good, uh, and, uh, and you did a great job contributing to that public good. So my name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act Podcast. You can find us on all the major podcasting services, as well as the video version out on YouTube. Please like, subscribe, rate, share, and all that fun stuff. We will see you next time. Thanks, Andy.